0: Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. It's a serious commitment when you sit down to talk to Susan Altman. She is forthright, focused, and values—actually, demands an honest exchange she's also a loving compassionate soul in her work as a health coach and an advocate of intuitive eating to her volunteering in hospice care susan exemplifies a highly evolved woman with a guten a good soul come and learn from her Hi, Susan. Hi. Welcome to TBA
1: now. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here.
0: I'm so glad that you're here. And uh, as uh, rumors uh, uh, indicate, this is your first uh, live podcast as a guest.
1: It is, and and I feel cool. I feel cool. <laughs> I feel hip. I feel like I'm I'm ready to go.
0: You are a hip, cool dude. I will tell you that for <laughs> sure. You are. We are so glad that you are here with us so we can get to know you and listen to some of the uh, great teachings that are really part of your life. I'd like to start by asking you something about how you ended up at Temple Beth Oda.
1: When Steve and I moved to South Brookline, we thought, you know what? We have so many friends and family members at Beth Oda. so we said, we're going. We're going. And we've never looked back.
0: Yay. Well... It's certainly, uh, was Zemrath loss, and our uh, great, um, it's a great Mechaia that the the Owen family is at Beth Avodah. So you have three kids and they're tall, very, very athletic. You know, to have one out of three kids really be a notable athlete is is something special. Three, as well as being conscientious conscientious human beings uh, in their own right. How, how did that happen? Did, did you start coaching them young? Is Steve uh, a hardcore jock? Like, how how did this all come about that you raised three athletes and three fine human beings?
1: I I definitely think it's a product of their environment from Steve and I. Steve was, uh, I mean, he was a Hall of Fame athlete. I have to mention that. He'd love that. A Hall of Fame athlete <laughs> at Newton South. And I was a three-sport athlete in high school as well. And I went out to- Where
0: were you in high school?
1: I went to, I grew up in, in South Burlington, Vermont. So I went to a South Burlington High School and played three sports there and then went to Trinity College in Hartford and played basketball because basketball has always been my favorite. So I think when Steve and I, when we first dated, we used to play basketball against each other and we were really competitive. I mean, we were both trying to win. So I think when we had kids, it was pretty natural for us that they would do sports. I think when they were three, they started with soccer and then there was t ball and always basketball. So I think it's just something that both Steve and I know. It's sort of how we grew up ourselves. So it's just what our kids fell into. So it, it was it felt really, I don't know, natural. And their height is definitely a help, a helpful, uh helpful thing in basketball, especially.
0: For sure. Yes. For sure. Yes. Tell us something about your, your Jewish journey, like w- where you came from and how you've ended up um, to be a passionately committed a member of the temple and, and a passionately committed a Jewish woman.
1: I love this story. I really do. So growing up, my parents' best friends were Jewish, which I think is wonderful and amazing. So I never, it's not, the religion wasn't foreign to me, but yes, there weren't that many, at the time of me growing up, there weren't that many Jews in South Burlington, Burlington. I'm not sure what the numbers are now. I'm sure there's more, but it's not a, I mean, it's not like around here where we live. So we we weren't really, we followed the Christian faith, but we never went to church ever. I've never been in a church with my parents before. So Mm -hmm. it's just, my my parents are very open and they've always been do what you want to do. So when I moved, after I graduated Trinity and I I moved here, I met Steve, my husband, pretty quickly after I moved here. I was working at Sansi and he came in and it's a great story, but maybe for another time. So on our second date, Steve, who is a Jewish man, said to me, listen, my wife needs to be Jewish. And I looked at him and I thought, this is our second date. This is amazing. I mean, he's committed. <laughs> I mean, this is really something. So I remember calling my parents and they said, what, who? Because it was the second date. And I said, how do you feel about that? And my parents said, we've always told you, you do what you want to do. You mm. choose what you want. And so they have been 100% behind me the whole time. And so I, I'm the youngest of four and my brothers and sisters are all in.
0: You meet this guy second date. Yep. He's basically saying. I'm clearly attracted enough to you to like ask something as outrageous as, not even to ask, to to declare. Yeah. You hear it, talk to your family. They're like, hey, do what you want to do. We support you. Then what happens?
1: So then we kept dating. I mean, he he basically was asking for an agreement. He was saying, I don't want to get too far in it with you because I really see a future with you. Second date. I guess this is love at first sight.
0: It sounds like so, me. Right?
1: I think it's, it's love at first sight. So he said- Were you suspicious? Um, no, it all feels right. When it's right, it's right. And you yeah. just sort of know. So it wasn't really a thing. It was just something I knew in the back of my mind. If we we're going to go forward in this relationship, that that's- that's what was going to happen. And it's really because he want He really wants his children to be Jewish. And it just, it just all worked. I, I ended up, um, we lived in Brooklyn at the time. So I ended up when we got engaged, I started taking classes. There's, a uh, just a reform class that you take. I learned some Hebrew. It was great. I mean, it was really fun. And and Steve learned quickly how little he knew actually uh, of Hebrew. It was reminding him from his bar mitzvah days. So it was it was all it was a beautifully organic experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Easy, easy. It was never dramatic. There were no tears. It didn't ever feel heavy. It just felt very. It felt right.
0: I wonder if you would tell us kind of about the evolution that you have gone through to arrive at the work that you're doing now and as well as some of the remarkable volunteer efforts that you do?
1: Right. So I got married to Steve when I was 24. So in today's day, that seems pretty young. Yeah. <laughs> I was 24 yeah. and I had my daughter when I was 26. So there wasn't really a, a time there to have a big career. I mean, to get going in a career. So... Had you hoped for one? It all. Everything happened so quickly that I never... I never really thought about it. I guess I only ever thought that I wanted to be a mom. Mm -hmm. So no, I hadn't really hoped for some big career. I really hoped to be a mom. Got it. So here I am, I find myself a mom and I am fortunate that I was able to stay home and be a stay at home mom, which is what I did. So I had Amanda and then two years later I had Jack and then two years later I had Ryan. So when Ryan was Three, it was time for him to go to preschool. So I thought, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I have time. My kids are all going to be in school. What do I want to do? So I had a good friend at the time who was doing health coaching and back then it wasn't called health coaching. Most people know what a health coach is nowadays. There's lots of them out there. So she said, "Try this school, Institute for Integrative Nutrition. Try it. You're going to love it. You'd be so good with this stuff." So I thought, "Okay. You know, I love I love to eat and I I love nutrition. So let's let's do it." So that's how I got into that in the year 2009. And it was the most incredible year because all of a sudden it was a year about me. It was about learning about me. What, why do I make the choices I do when it comes to food? Why am I doing this? Why, it wasn't about the kids. It wasn't about Steve, it was about me. So it was a transformative year for sure. Mm. And then it was time to see clients. And I, I thought, what do I know about, I mean, am I ready for this? I don't, are you ever really ready? I don't know. So I started seeing clients and it was incredible.
0: Were you doing this by word of mouth, Susan? How did people know about you?
1: At first it was word of mouth. And then I i have a friend who runs a kettlebell studio and she said, listen, I need, I need someone, a health coach who can help because working out and, and nutrition kind of go hand in hand. And so she said, I'd love to run some programs. It'll build your client base. And so it really worked. So for Maybe three or four years, I ran these programs with her, which we called cleanses, which now the word makes me really uncomfortable. But we ran these cleanses, which is basically a food plan that I wrote up for everybody to follow. And it was for, you could either pick five days, seven days, or 21 days and follow this and with my support and my guidance. And then they were doing the workouts with with Jen on the backside. So that is how I got a lot of clients mm-hmm. from that because people want more. And the thing I, why I said it makes me cringe when I say the word cleanse now is because all I was really doing is writing up just sort of a, a way that's, I guess it's a healthy way of eating, but it just came very naturally that this type of eating. And the problem is, is that people used it as a diet. And so they would become really restrictive about it and be kind of freaked out about it, which leads, we will definitely get into this, but it was, um, it was an interesting, definitely an interesting time. And I met someone who was Running Meta, which is the Multi Service Eating Disorder Association, she was at the gym and she did a cleanse with me to sort of see what my attitude was about it and to see where I really stood with health and wellness. And she taught me a lot during the cleanse. And then she said, "Why don't you come to Meta and why don't you not do those cleanses anymore?" Hmm. And so I learned a lot about that. And I ended up being at Meta for eight years, and I was on the board and I I ran one of their programs there which is really, yeah, which is really good.
0: And how have you, so have you continued in the field of health coaching? Are you still doing that?
1: So I did it for a long time. And then when the pandemic happened, everything sort of stopped. As far as nobody, all we, all anyone was doing was eating and cooking at home. Because yeah. that's all we could do. You go to the grocery shop and you come home and you're cooking three meals a day and you've got, it. you know, the house is very full and every single question is what's for breakfast, what's right, for lunch, right. what's for dinner. And so it was all about food. This isn't a time when people were looking necessarily in the beginning. I'm talking about the lockdown period yes. and, or myself, I didn't. I wasn't thinking about health coaching. I was just thinking about basic survival like everyone else. So I got interested in other things during that time. So today I will see a few people. I have a few long-standing clients that I see, mm-hmm. but it's more I would say it's a little more of life coaching than health coaching.
0: Got it. You know, um mentioning what it was like uh, during particularly that tough lockdown period. Where food became such a crutch, right? Such a, a comfort, and something d- a distraction, in a way of bringing people together. Do you think, as we've come to this, you know, I don't know, there's I don't know if there's such thing as an end, but at this phase, let's say of the pandemic, as you look around, what's the the damage that's been done to us as we think about food? Post lockdown, like as we're emerging back into that, do you do you see some some bad stuff that's happened, or are we sort of trying to resume the way that we have always eaten?
1: You know how every January it's a new year, a new you, and the diet diet industry is really they're jumping on board. We're gonna January is the time. I don't know who voted on this, but January is <laughs> when we do it. So after this pandemic period, I I do think that many people, not all people, of course, but many people put on some pounds. They maybe weren't exercising as much as they usually do, eating more, eating different types of food than they had, and their bodies were responding a particular way. Mm -hmm. So what I see, what I've been observing is people are trying to backtrack and get back to where they were with great intensity. So you know, my phone starts ringing a -hmm. lot more. Mm -hmm. I need help. I need help. I I need to lose the all, all it's always 10 pounds. I want to lose 10 pounds. I, if I had a nickel for every time someone (laughs) said they want to lose 10 pounds. So I say, okay, why 10 pounds or what's going on? And, and so that's sort of where we start. But I, I really, I think that this time for some reason, it's like our January people are just want to be in a different body. They just are looking for escape. So yes, I think the pandemic has made people utterly confused about food once again. And so here we are. It's like January, but it's not.
0: In your home,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how has that played out?
1: Oh, we all had a great time during <laughs> during lockdown. I mean, we, we made the best of it for sure. I The way I raise my kids from- is from forever is, is just to listen to their bodies and eat when they're hungry and make sure they're getting enough exercise and make sure they're sleeping. I, I, I don't really focus on what they're eating. A big premise of There's a lot of things about the diet culture in our society. One is that there are certain foods that are good and bad. And like, if someone said, Oh, I can't eat, I can't eat pizza. That's bad. Or um, I can't have sugar, that's bad. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to have a salad, that's good. And it's just, it puts everything into a box that it's, food should never be in a box. It's not, it it shouldn't have power over you, but it really does. It's in this culture, it's made it where people also think they need to earn their food. So they work out really hard and I've earned this bagel, I've earned this, or they give themselves guilt or shame. So when I'm raising kids and when we're eating during a pandemic, it's not with that in mind. We're eating to nourish our body. Mm -hmm. And I know I had the opportunity to speak to members of the congregation right before the COVID hit. Yes. And we talked about intuitive eating. And I could see in the eyes of so many people, they're like, nope, mm-mm, nope, 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 nope. I am not trusting myself I with think this. I was one of
0: those people. And you were. Head, no, uh-huh. you were.
1: And you had questions and you said, I don't, it takes a really long time to be able to trust yourself because you're being told a lot of things every single day that you notice that you may notice that you don't notice. I mean, every time you see a magazine or a picture of someone Someone has decided that that's the ideal body type, or this is the ideal this and that, and everyone happens to be under twenty, and it's just not realistic. But it's the way it is. So when you say intuitive eating to someone, they say, "No, no, no, just tell me what to eat. Tell me what to eat."
0: Right. It feels uh, so much easier to say, "Make the choice for me," or all of these programs uh, where they give you boxed yep. or bagged. Food and you know, you eat their product and it works. It works on the first phase.
1: You mean it works Um, like you're losing weight or it works that you don't have to think about it? Or both?
0: (laughs) Both actually (laughs) that makes it easy, right? Because you have a craving or you're hungry and you immediately know you can only eat X, Y, or Z. But eventually one leaves the comfort, and I use comfort in quotes. And has to start making independent decisions about real food issues out there. And that's always, I think, where the disconnect happens and where the failure rate is so I mean, so stupendously high. It's
1: I mean really high about yeah. about diets in general. I, I the diet industry it's a 70 billion dollar a year industry. It's all about money. They do not Is that care how much about again? It. 70 billion. As of 2020. I don't know the 2022 numbers. 2020 70 billion dollars. I mean that's astonishing. So it's it's it's, just, it's about it's definitely about money. And and listen, there are definitely times when you need nutritional advice, whether it's from a health coach or from a nutritionist, from a dietitian, if you're recovering from surgery, if you have cancer, if you're training for something, a marathon, or you're a weightlifter. There are definitely times when it's really good to have advice and seek advice. You can't you can't intuitive eat your way in those situations. It doesn't really work. Ultimately, hopefully you can. Yes. Like you'll teach yourself and figure out what's working and what doesn't but so there's always a time for that but for the general public it's trust yourself a little trust yourself a lot actually
0: yeah yeah
1: and it takes years years and years to make that happen
0: intuitive eating is this a movement was this was did this begin with a particular teach like i know what you're saying the the phrase intuitive eating doesn't seem particularly complicated but as a person with Lifelong issues around food, where everything comes from some book or some background. Intuitive eating sounds kind of pretty self-explanatory, but I need help. So, uh, explain what what it's about, how you came upon it, and what the basic uh, core of it's about.
1: I came upon it when I was at Meta, where there's a lot of eating disorders. Obviously, that's why people are coming here, but really severe eating disorders that are pretty scary. And in young, young kids start, I mean, young kids. And I think intuitive eating was born out of the anti-diet industry movement saying, trust yourself, listen to yourself. Why are you trying to shrink yourself? Why are you trying to fit into a box? Why are you trying to do something that you're not listening to what your body needs? You might be restricting calories to the point where it's, you have no energy to do anything else. Now, listen, I did all of these diets. When I was first getting into this, I didn't, I wasn't doing intuitive eating at all. I had, my clients wanted to do certain diets, so I would do them so I could understand what they were. Uh I did the keto diet once. And I don't know if you know what that is, but it's basically, I think you're eating under 20 grams of carbohydrates a day. And I passed out in my kitchen because I, and I was dreaming of eating a grape. I mean, it was, it was completely bonkers bananas for me. I didn't understand why anyone would do something like that to themselves, but they'll tell you, oh, you're going to, you're going to burn fat and get energy from your secondary source, which is your brain. And you're going to, if you're going to feel so clear and smart and I didn't, all I felt like is that I couldn't even pick up my head because I was so tired. So I, All of this I did, but I I really think the intuitive eating movement really and truly came from just the anti-diet movement. Just listen to your body. And it's, again, it is just like you said, it's very simplistic in nature. It really tries to explore why you make the decisions that you do. Like Mm -hmm. why do you choose to eat the foods you do? Is it, do you eat a certain way because you're stressed? Are you lonely? Are you trying to fill up? the space of loneliness with potato chips or ice cream or whatever your comfort food may be. Are you bored? Are you, it's just all those kind of things, just trying to understand why you make the decisions to eat.
0: So now the question of course, then I would ask you is, okay, this is what I like to do. I just need the cracker with the cheese. And mm-hmm. so the question is, how do I deal with it? Right? So now I know why,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what do I do next?
1: you eat the cracker with the cheese. And I say that because if you don't eat the cracker with the cheese, you're going to think about the cracker with the cheese for a long time and then you're going to end up eating overeating something down the road, whether it's the cracker, the cheese or something else. You right. will eat you will eat more of it than needed. So, when it comes to comfort foods, there's a reason why you're craving that. There's a reason. So, should you I think it's more about, and this is where the intuition comes in. When you, when you get to a point where you're humming and you're going and you're listening to your body, you'll eat the crackers and cheese, but you'll eat a certain amount of it and then you're satisfied. Mm -hmm. And then you, and then you move on. And so it doesn't have power over you if that makes any sense. I mean, no, I, everybody everybody has their comfort foods. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Food is meant to be comforting at times. I mean, think about in the Jewish religion, we use food for everything. Every do. holiday is around food. So, I mean, think about that.
0: So the incredulous person like me, for instance, would say there has to be some regulator, you know, in our brain that defines what's enough. And what if, I think mine is broken. No, it's not. It really isn't.
1: No, it's really not. It's not. You're just. I, I think if if people spend a long time of each day thinking about what their next meal is, then something is a little bit off. You want to be filling up your times with with what you're doing. What what do you? Why are you here? What do you, what are you, What's your purpose? What are you What are you doing? And if all you're thinking about is, well, what I'm doing is what I'm eating next, then something is, is missing. Right. And so it's obviously a, a much bigger question, but nothing's broken with you. You, you just love to eat, right? Just so do oh, yes. I. I do think that when you sit down to eat with someone, you can tell a lot about them by what they eat. And I tell my clients that, and I also tell them what you eat is the least interesting thing about you. I like
0: about what that is
1: so I let when I sit down with somebody to talk to them I want to know what is going on in their life what's what's making them happy what's making them angry what's making them sad what are they feeling I love to talk about feelings it's my <laughs> favorite thing in the world and so when people start to talk about what they're feeling then food becomes secondary it's not really that important anymore it's It's more about let's share, let's connect, let's talk. What's going on? And if people did that more, then they wouldn't, in my opinion, they wouldn't necessarily look to food so much to fill that connection piece.
0: So you're suggesting that there's a uh, spiritual aspect to all of this?
1: Of course. Of course.
0: So that ultimately, this is about being in tune with oneself.
1: always. Always, and and the, and the further away you are from yourself, then food could become a tricky area, not for everybody. And again, there's that asterisk there saying that there are some people that need help with food based on what's going on in their life. And so that's why I'm a big fan of health coaches, nutritionists, dietitians, all of that. It's essential sometimes, yeah. but for the most part, we want to be able to just live and be.
0: I, I did not know. That one of the things that you've chosen to do is to be a hospice volunteer, which is an enormously specific and I would think deeply significant kind of work. Not for anyone who has issues with attachment, because the people you're going to help first and foremost are people who are in the last stages, the last stage. Uh, of their lives. So how did you come upon the work of volunteering for hospice? And what has that been like for you? And how does it fit in the puzzle of you?
1: I, as I said, I I was a stay-at-home mom, and then I moved into health coaching, which is still very much on my schedule. And when I went to Meta and was volunteering there, I felt such a, a sense of of purpose by helping and educating people about food and wellness. And I also, so it sort of led me into volunteer work in general. So I started working a friend of mine uh, was at the Brookline food pantry and said, come on down. I said, Oh, right on. So I went down and I helped at the Brookline food pantry Mm. and I love, love animals. So (laughs) I start working at angel. It's just the best. And then when it came to hospice i have lost both my in-laws and specifically my mother-in-law she passed away in 2015 and when she was going through the transition it was very very quick so there wasn't really a there wasn't much time that we had with her at the end but when it was her last day we all we all met there and we were you know by her bed and and There was a certain calmness that came over me. And I can't explain it, but it was almost like, wow, you're going to go find out the secret. Like you're going to learn what happens. And I thought, okay, let's, like, this is really a beautiful experience. Let's make this beautiful. It's been quick and it's, we've been gypped in a lot of ways, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, everyone's going to die. We're all going to die at one point. So why not? Make the experience as beautiful as we can.
0: How was your experiencing this? How did it jibe with the extended family that was surrounding you and surrounding Linda?
1: A couple members of the family say, How are you so calm? Like you're just dealing with this. And I say, I don't, it just feels very natural. This is just this is just part of life, so mm-hmm. it was always I, I can I can't explain it except that there was a calmness that came over me, and I thought, wow, this is really something that I want to be involved in. Now, this is back in 2015, so nothing really happened until the the pandemic happened, and I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do hospice work. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to figure out mm-hmm. how I can do this. So I was trained and and now see see people and. What you have to understand with with volunteering with hospice, the, the qualifiers for being in hospice are is, is that two doctors have to sign off on the fact that you are not going to live six more months. It's six months or less. That's the qualifications for hospice. And with Medicare, part of it is a volunteer, is part of your your service. They want someone to come in. So I go in as a respite to the family. So if the family, it's it's, it's around the clock care for someone who's at the end of their life. And so when I come in, I can just talk and be and be a presence and and what I say is that I'm just keeping someone company in the last in the last bits and I'm listening to the stories and there's mm-hmm. so many stories. And I come in I don't come in with sadness. I don't come in with all the baggage that's that the family is coming in with. I mean, they've had their whole lifetime with this person. So I'm coming in just like, "Hey, let's talk. Tell me something. Tell me about yourself." And it gives both of us, the patient and myself, a chance to make friends. We're friends. And it's so beautiful and so fulfilling to be able to sit with someone in the end of their life and just be a neutral a neutral person. And I hope to bring them sunshine and just a little bit of calmness and see. I mean, sometimes I'll go in and, and they're tired yeah. and I'll just sit. And they'll sit. And if they want to say something, they say something. I'll read to them. Just there's all kinds of things. We listen to music. There's all kinds of things that happen at the end of life. But it, it can be a really beautiful experience. And hopefully, it is for, for everybody. I mean, obviously, there's endings that are not beautiful at all. Right. The, the tragedies. There's so many of those. But for the hospice ones, they can be. It can be lovely.
0: How do you think this work has changed? who you are.
1: I've never been someone who's been afraid to die. It's never, and maybe maybe it is what you're saying about attachment. I've just never been afraid of it. And so how it's changed me is that all I see is beauty in it. When I walk in a room, I don't see the sick person. I see a person's life in front of me. And so it's changed me in, again, we talked about connection before, and it's just made me think, wow connection is absolutely everything and i wish that people could open themselves up more to and open their hearts more to connection while we're living and then mm-hmm. in death it's it's very natural
0: you know it is so interesting the way that you've managed in a very intuitive way across the board to see your life as a quilt woven together as opposed to walking around with uh, different pieces and flopping them around when they're necessary. You know, one thing seems to lead connect to the other. And as you're suggesting, it really is about the relationships that you create. You know, you're helping a family keep it together, like literally feed themselves, literally bring comfort to their children, to each other, to themselves. And The same thing applies when you walk into a a room that's been outfitted for hospice. It's uh, You know, you're an amazing person.
1: Oh, thank you. You really are. So,
0: so Susan, what's the game plan moving forward? What are the things you haven't done yet that you want to do?
1: Well, I definitely want to keep doing what I'm doing in hospice. And I, I want to inspire people to be honest and truthful when they have a conversation, just what's up. I don't want to, if I'm talking to you, I don't want to hear just the good things. I want to hear it all. I love to, I just, I love to understand where people are coming from. I think it's, it's something that I want to continue forever. And with each passing week, I I feel more and more peaceful and I'm very, very grateful for the life that's in front of me. I would like to travel and open up the world more and see how other people live and other cultures that don't speak the language. I mean, I haven't done a lot of traveling. I've been to probably every Caribbean island there is, but I mean, when I say travel, I mean travel. So that's where I see my... i. I I wonder what my kids are going to end up doing. I think about Mm -hmm. that a lot and, and what pieces that they'll take They're Each of them are very spiritual in their own ways. And it's really fun to talk about it. They know that they can always be open and honest. That's what we expect as parents and just whatever you're feeling, feel it, do it. Like we'll, we'll deal with it. So I, I don't know. I, I see my life definitely just going up. And just continuing where I'm at and hopefully inspiring people to connect and be honest and truthful always just by leading by example. I guess that's what I try to do every, every day with every conversation I ever have.
0: So that means you're a great friend, but you're a, um, a friend with great expectations.
1: Yeah. But if someone's lying to me, I know they're lying to me. And um, it's interesting. It's an interesting situation to be in because do I call them out on it or do I just take that in and think, okay, this is not about me. It's obviously something's going on with them and we'll try again another time. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting, I'm sure the same thing happens for you. Well,
0: <laughs> you know, as you're describing this, I'm, I'm looping back to your description of intuitive eating. And again, as a person who struggles with this, people who feel out of control with food lie all the time about what they're eating all the time Uh, and and it's it's really a chronic issue that there's a all the shame that gets wrapped up with it and all of the secondary tertiary issues that go along with that and it makes it to get to that point right where as you're suggesting as a general rule of life to just put it out there like this is what i'm doing this is what i'm feeling this is what i can handle this is what i can't handle this is what i have to do right now and to be just upfront about it, it that that's hard stuff that's hard stuff and having someone who who is uh really clear on that is is a very special very special person to have in one's life i would venture to say that the members of your family and your friends your community the people that you come in contact with all feel deeply you know, blessed to have your forthrightness uh, present.
1: Thank you. Well, everyone should know that I will always be honest, but I would never be honest to hur- honest and hurtful. There are those people that say, well, I'm just being honest, and they'll say something that's just brutal and unnecessary. There's There's a difference. There's an elegance in it. And I will continue to work on that for the rest of my life.
0: Susan, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you today for tba now and i look forward to continuing to be in your radiant presence <laughs> to uh to enjoy and learn um, all the things that you have and I, oh and i did just want to say i learn from you almost every day because you always have uh on instagram in addition to sharing family Nachis, which you do so wonderfully there's Oh, almost always, I don't know if you do it daily. It feels I do. Like, yeah. <laughs> so every day um, you post an aphorism that is a really life-affirming statement. I, I've saved a number of them, and uh, they've cropped up in some sermons over the years. And I, I specifically wanted to thank you for that and how they do really and truly reflect um, what the gutta nishuma, what a good soul you have. So oh. um, thanks for being a part of this community, and thanks for being on TBA now.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Find all of our episodes on bethavodah.org or on podcast sites everywhere. Special thanks to our brilliant producer, Amy Tonkonogy, and our intrepid engineer, Mike Kligerman.